now people are emerging into their third and final act with lots of skills, more than our share of resources, and, you know, increasingly some grandkids, and hence some real curiosity, interest, worry about what our legacy will be. And I think we can leverage those skills and resources to make profound change if we want. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Bill McKibben has a new target for his climate activism, his fellow baby boomers. McKibben, the founder of the global climate action group 350.org and a best-selling author, announced last week that he will end his weekly climate crisis column in The New Yorker and instead launch his own online newsletter and a new organization, thirdact.org. He tweeted, quote, We're going to try and organize experienced Americans, i.e. people over 60 like me, around issues of climate justice, racial justice, and economic justice. I asked McKibben, who lives in Vermont, to talk about his new venture. Bill McKibben, welcome back to the Vermont Conversation. David, it is a great pleasure to be with you, as it always is. <laughs> so, boomers have done a very good job of screwing up the world. Um, <laughs> we are the generation that brought us gas-guzzling SUVs, McMansions. We drove carbon emissions through the stratosphere. So, explain Third Act and why you're counting on this generation to solve these problems. Well, I'm not sure that counting on is quite the right um, word, but I do think that probably people of uh, our age, our vintage, should start thinking and are starting to think about how they might um, how they might clean up some of the mess. Now, the mess didn't come just from us, obviously, and boomers did a lot of interesting things in this world too. Uh, you know, the first act of our lives was. Uh, either participating in or bearing witness to some of the most important and profound social transformation uh, in the history of the world. Um, people were around to help with or to watch the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the anti-war movement, and those things had profound effects. But I think we may have overestimated the degree to which they'd resulted in permanent change. And I think we may have been willing to kind of coast for uh, a number of decades um, um, and, and ride the last part of that wave of post-war prosperity. Um, and as a result, we've ended up in some really, as you know, difficult places. Uh, we live in a world of extreme income and wealth inequality, and we live in a, 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 a world whose racial wounds far from healing are widening. And we live in a world where people go to bed at night with an existential dread that keeps them awake about whether or not civilizations are, are going to survive the ecological havoc we've unleashed. I mean, I was in Manhattan last Wednesday night when the rainstorm came the greatest rain in the history of New York City, <laughs> breaking the record that had been set 11 days earlier. Um, uh, and it really was a, a nightmare vision of, um, uh, 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 of the world that we're building, you know, a kind of Blade Runner city for an evening um, with water 
gushing down in buckets and 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 you know the same kind of reminder that people are getting when they look at the sky and see the smoke or or whatever it is so i think that people's first act was interesting maybe our second acts by and large a little less so more concerned with uh ourselves as consumers than citizens you know but now people are emerging into their third and final act uh, with lots of skills, more than our share of resources, and you know, increasingly some grandkids, um, and hence some real curiosity, interest, worry about what our legacy will be. And I think we can leverage those skills and uh, resources to make profound change if we want. You founded 350.org, and you've been a key figure who's organized and inspired younger activists to take action. Why not keep working with them? What was your inspiration, really, for turning your attention towards older people? Well, David, I've got a bad prostate. No, um, the, um, um, <laughs> and also I must say your reference to the final act. There's something about that you, in terms of the marketing of this thing. You yeah, might yeah, want no, to tweak that a little. <laughs> yeah, the uh, uh, look. The young people have their stuff together now. Um, you know, I'm really proud of what when we started 350.org. <clears throat> I was 40 or so. And we had started it with seven college students. <clears throat> and it was one of the first iterations of what's become this massive global climate movement that's focused on young people. <clears throat> and it's those young people now that are reaching out and, and asking for help. If you go to the uh, little, you know, sort of rudimentary website we've set up as we're very soft launching this third act thing. And I will say it is going to take a while to get this thing built out. Uh, but you'll see a, a little wonderful little video from Greta Thunberg, uh, who I asked, just would you say a few words about this? And because she's a remarkable person and a, one of my really favorite friends in all this work, she immediately sent over this video. Uh, and it just <clears throat> reminds us that, you know, it's a little much to expect uh, 18 year olds and 24 year olds and whatever to uh, change the world by themselves. So let me give you an example. Um, one of the things we've been working a lot on is banks and trying to stop their lending to the fossil fuel industry. Um, and young people this fall are targeting those banks as we did, you know, just before the pandemic, the pandemic interrupted a lot of this work. My last trip before the lockdown was to jail in DC for getting arrested in the lobby of Chase Bank at the launch of this campaign. But young people are really taking it up and, and making it their theme for this autumn in the States. Um, but they've asked others to join in. And if you're the, you know, if you're the branch manager of the Chase Bank in Burlington, well, having a bunch of college kids there is definitely not what you want, you know, outside chanting or whatever. Um, and it'll be effective and useful, but it'll be more effective and more useful if you're also hearing from a bunch of the people who have substantial retirement accounts sitting in your vault, you know, um, and fair or not, 
uh, boomers and the silent generation above them control something like 70% of the financial assets in our society. Um, and so these are things that should be brought to bear. And I think, I think that uh, experienced Americans, as I've taken to calling them, um, want to bring their, uh, uh, many of them want to bring that power to bear, but they're don't know precisely where to start um, and how to join in always. Uh, in some cases they do. O older people are the bulwark of many an organization, you know, um, uh, from the Democratic Party to the Sierra Club to whatever it is. But I think that people want to speak also with that generational voice. We'll find out. Um, um, I take it as a good sign that uh, uh, in the days since the we did this very soft launch of this thing. I just talked about it uh, uh, once or twice on Twitter and mentioned it buried in the New Yorker column. We've had an extraordinary response. Um, thousands and thousands of people signing up um, to the point where we're sort of <laughs> not talking about it for a little while to give ourselves a kind of chance to dig out and catch up um, um, and, and figure out how to, how to kind of put it on sound footing. Hmm. Um, on Labor Day weekend, you joined Vermont's junior senator, Bernie Sanders, who celebrates his 80th birthday this week. <laughs> Vermont's, Vermont's congressional delegation <laughs> is definitely proof of the ability of people to proof provide, of concept. <laughs> provide leadership past a certain, past a certain age. So you and Bernie were on the town green in, in Middlebury, and there was a serious um, mission that he is on right now. Yeah. So explain a little this $3.5 trillion infrastructure bill, which may well be the crowning achievement of his political career if he's able to get some version of it passed. Yes, the crowning achievement of his political career and the most important legislation that Congress has considered in our adult lifetimes, David, I, I mean, it seems to me the biggest thing since LBJ and the Great Society. Um, so, but but by no means guaranteed or perhaps even likely to pass in anything like its necessary form. Um, let's let's be clear about this. Uh, there are two bills that will come before the Congress this fall. The first is this bipartisan. Uh, infrastructure bill, about a trillion dollars that some Republicans have signed on to. So it seems very likely to pass. And the second is this much larger three and a half trillion dollar bill that, well, that Bernie and others are describing as a kind of human infrastructure bill. Um, although it contains a lot of also physical infrastructure around things like climate change. Um, it, it, it's the bill that would uh, provide lots and lots of money for affordable housing, for childcare, for pharmaceutical assistance, for making sure that old people can get eyeglasses and dental care. Um, uh, uh, Bernie put it, I thought, uh, beautifully yesterday. He said that, that, you know, one without the other is uh, incomplete. We shouldn't be building bridges just so people can sleep under them. And uh, that, that struck me as uh, exactly the right pitch to be making. It's going to be extraordinarily difficult to get this second big bill through. It can only 
there's no chance of Republicans supporting it because it does good things for people. So forget that. So you need every single member of the Democratic caucus to support it. Um, um, and all 50 votes, which effectively makes, you know, Joe Manchin the decider on what goes in and what doesn't. And he's already said uh, he wants to hit the pause button on consideration of it and that three and a half trillion dollars to him and, you know, on and on and on. I don't I don't pretend to know what the negotiations behind the scenes are looking like, but I can tell you that out front, it's going to take all of us weighing in hard to make a difference. We don't need to weigh in in Vermont. We don't need to write our congressional delegation. They're obviously going to do the right thing. Peter Welch was there on the green too, um, giving a stirring speech. Um, but we do need to activate our every network that we know of, every organization that we belong to around the country, every group of people we know in other places. We need to get everybody engaged in this fight, because if it passes, it will be transformational. On climate change alone, look, the US Congress has managed to do essentially nothing about climate change, zero, zip, mm. not a zilch for the 30 some years that we've known about it. Uh, and this would put a lot of money into things like retrofitting homes um, to make them more energy efficient and more affordable for the people who live in them. It would also create things like a civilian climate corps, paying young people uh, 15 bucks an hour to go do a lot of the work that we need in order to make this transition. Um, so it's an extraordinary piece of legislation. I think one of its big problems, and this just may be the writer in me speaking, but uh, I, th calling it the reconciliation bill or the uh, the three and a half trillion dollar infrastructure proposal doesn't quite um, the New Deal and the Great Society were better names. Um, so I was trying to think yesterday on the green of what I would call it if it were up to me, and I suggested we call it the the give us a break bill. Um, we've spent most of our adult lifetimes since the Reagan administration offering enormous breaks to the richest and most powerful people in our society. They get tax breaks. They get regulatory breaks. It's uh, allowed them to pile up cash uh, to such a uh, uh, in such a large stack that they're now, you know, hopping off the top to reach Mars. I mean, um, um, they've, they've done all right. And now it's the rest of us who really do need a break, uh, a, a break from healthcare costs, education costs, housing costs, uh, and a break from having to lay in bed at night wondering if anyone's ever going to do anything about slowing down the inexorable rise in temperature of our planet. Well, talk about the forces that are now lined up to oppose this thing, because, um, I don't know if it's surprising or not, but but kind of lay out the landscape here. The Washington Post had a great story last week. Um, uh, they'd done the digging to figure out that where all of corporate America was quietly lining up. And the place where all of corporate America is quietly lining up is to defeat this thing. And the reason is because to pay for it, you would increase the corporate tax rate, not back to what it was when you and I were in high school, not back to what it was uh, the average of the last hundred years, just up to 28%. Um, um, 
corporations that like to be, you know, uh, uh, want to be treated like people in the um, uh, in the courts should at least be taxed like people. <laughs> well, and, and, and note that 28 percent is below what it was when Trump came into office. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So this is um, restoring something that was five years ago. Yes, exactly. We're, we're, we're not talking about confiscatory, confiscatory taxation, but we are, you know, these guys do not want to pay it. And so it turns out that everyone, the Chamber of Commerce with its thousands of big companies, the National Association of Manufacturers, uh, the fossil fuel industry, obviously, because they anything that threatens the hegemony of coal and gas and oil is uh, poison to them. Um, um, but also, you know, Walmart and FedEx and Lowe's and Apple. And now you got to say that that should frost everybody. These guys have been running, uh, uh, you know, ads and, you, you know, for uh, five years now, explaining how much they care about the environment, how important racial and economic uh, inequality is to them, uh, all the things that they're trying to do to help the planet. It's all turns out to be nonsense. Someone finally puts forward some legislation that would do something large and concrete about any of these problems. And they're like, oh, well, you know, tax is going to go up a couple of percent. Can't have that. It is the uh, it, it is hypocrisy at its finest. And it's also just stupid. I mean, look, if we manage to break the earth, which is entirely possible, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has told us we have until 2030 to cut emissions in half if we want to have any hope of meeting the targets we set at Paris. If we break the planet, it's not really going to be particularly good for Lowe's or Walmart or anybody else in the long run, or even the medium run. But these guys can only think about the shortest of terms. That's what got us in this trouble. And maybe it's one reason why it would be good to have people... Uh, uh, who are maybe past the height of their commercial money-making uh, years, a little more involved in, in helping move this political debate. Well, <clears throat> let's talk about where we are right now. The COVID pandemic, you can't really say there, anything good has come of it. It's been a lot of suffering and misery, but there it is an inflection point. And this is a moment of social transformation but as Americans, you know, we find ourselves careening between polar extremes with, you know, on the one hand, a, a, the promise of multiracial democracy, and on the other, the very real threat of authoritarianism best captured by the January 6th uh, attempted coup by Trump and his supporters. Or by Texas's new abortion law. Uh, and fast forward bounty to voter hunting. suppression and bounty hunting in Texas. Um, so I'm not sure how this thing is going to break. Uh, how are you feeling right now about oh, the future of democracy? I, I, I'm feeling, David, extremely concerned like you. I don't know how it's going to break either. And, and it's why it's so irresponsible of big forces that should know better, like Apple computers to be playing such a dangerous and stupid game all the time. Um, Joe Biden is, is offering everybody a kind of way out of the hole that we've put ourselves in. 
a kind of moderate, sane, sensible um, um, uh, path forward that should be reasonable for almost everyone who's not an extreme ideologue. Um, and, and boy, would we be advised to take it and fast, it seems to me, because the foundations that we take for granted are, are I think, very shaky. One of the things I've been trying to say for 30 years is that the physical world is far more vulnerable and fragile than we understood. Um, you know, we took the physical stability of the earth for granted. And, and it turns out, as some of us had guessed, that that was unwise, that a mild increase in the temperature, which we've seen so far, would be enough to destabilize the most fundamental systems on earth, the jet stream, the Gulf Stream, things like that. Well, I, I'm afraid the same is true of our political systems. Because the U.S. is uh, a quarter of a millennium old, uh, we've come to think of it as an, an eternal given that we'll have a working polity. But, I, you know, uh, right now, it, it's starting not to feel that way. The Supreme Court, which is supposed to be the ballast in our uh, ship, has turned into a, a, you know, kind of wildly swinging, uh, to rudder swinging hard to the right, I must say it at all times. Um, uh, it's refusal even to offer an opinion before it permitted Texas to start hunting down women um, um, uh, was shocking to anyone who sort of has, you know, lived through uh, the deliberative, um, the deliberative work of the judiciary in the 20th century. So uh, I don't know. All I know is that uh, more organizing is always better. More people engaged in trying to make the system bend in the right directions is always useful. And, and more people with a stake in it like that is always useful. So, uh, I, you know, I, I may be simple-minded, but organizing seems to me often the correct answer to whatever the question is that we're raising. And so we'll try to do some more of it. Well, you maybe shine a light in uh, the direction, the path forward through the world of fiction that you have lately been dabbling in. Um, and uh, <laughs> you're starting a new book, The Other Cheek, which mm. you're describing as a superhero adventure where the superheroes have no special powers. Uh, so uh, explain. You'll, well, you'll remember the... Uh, you'll remember uh, Radio Free Vermont because um, uh, you and I got to talk about it a couple of times. In yes, with, with, the only... it's with the inspiration for its protagonist, Ken Squire. Exactly. That was the only um, that was the only intentional fiction I've ever written. Um, and I called it a fable and because I'm not really a novelist. And it did it turned out to be freakishly popular. Um so I, I, because I enjoyed it, I've kept at it. And this new book is a kind of prequel sequel to it. And, and I'm giving it away. Well, not really sort of uh, you, if people I have this Substack newsletter called the crucial years that I've just launched and people who subscribe to it, most of it's for free, but people who subscribe and my share of the subscription revenues is going to go to support this third act thing. People who subscribe will get a weekly installment of this book, 
uh, the other cheek, which I'm calling in this case, not a fable, but a yarn. Um, and it is an attempt to, to figure out uh, if we one couldn't make nonviolence as entertaining as violence seems to be. Um, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm squeamish, I must say. So I have a hard time watching an enormous amount of what's on TV or the movies. Um, but even the kind of cartoon versions, the kind of Marvel comic universe and things, uh, always ends in a fistfight. Force is always the thing that we use to, you know, as a dramatic element. But I've spent so much time in nonviolent movements and reading their history and things that I think that there's extraordinary drama and, and stories to be told. I'm not sure I'm the one to tell them. Um, I'm not sure how good this book is or isn't. Um, and, you know, at points I just give in to my uh, uh, inclination to have fun. Um, but um, I think as it unfolds, people may um, may enjoy it. I hope so anyway. Uh, um, and, and I enjoy too the idea of serializing the book every week. Um, I always loved those stories of how uh, Dickens novels all appeared, you know, in installment at a time and how people would wait for them. I doubt anyone will be waiting for this each Friday, but still, uh, maybe in our short attention span world, um, doling out a, a piece at a time may prove uh, better for everyone. You write in The Other Cheek, uh, quote, we haven't won the climate fight. We've definitely begun to shift the zeitgeist. When you fight, it's amazing how often you win. What wins are you proudest of? Because I know that in the course of this, you've had a lot of losses. Um, sure. It's a big fight you're in. Sure. Well, you know, we're just this month on the 10th anniversary of the beginning of the real battle over the Keystone Pipeline, which we won. And I'm happy we won, partly because it stopped that pipeline, mostly because it demonstrated that big oil could be beaten if enough people showed up. And since then, everything's been fought. And we've won a lot of these things. There's a ton of pipelines and oil terminals and uh, fracking wells and things that didn't get built because people showed up in numbers to stop them. Um, we didn't win everything, of course. I'm, we're in the process of losing this epic battle over line three right now. Um, um, but uh, so that's one. And I suppose for me, the other has been the just the beauty of this huge sprawling divestment campaign around fossil fuel. We're at about $15 trillion now in endowments and portfolios that have uh, divested from fossil fuel, including every, uh, I think at this point, every, almost every college in Vermont, um, including UVM. But of course, it is depressing to see that uh, uh, the state pension fund um, um, has not followed the lead of New York or Maine or others and divested its holdings from fossil fuel. Vermont's still trying to make money off the end of the world, and that's depressing. Hmm. And finally, Bill, uh, I know that the whole uh, the climate emergency and all your activism is really just what you do between innings of Red Sox games. <laughs> so... so uh, as I've asked you to be the oracle of democracy and predict its chances, 
Um, the Red Sox, who spent weeks in first place, have found ever more creative ways to lose since the All-Star break. Uh, could you just weigh in on how do you like their postseason chances? I, it seems to seems to depend entirely on the Delta variant. Uh, the Red Sox <laughs> are the best argument for vaccination that I've ever seen. Uh, you know, please, boys, get your shots. Get it together, guys. <laughs> it's too hard to watch. <laughs> yes, agreed. I, I have been marveling at how a billion dollar business can't just tell the guys who are responsible for this to go get vaccinated. Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> oh, well. All right. Well, Bill McKibben, I want to thank you again for joining us on the Vermont all right. Conversation. And, and uh, so many thanks for all your good work, David. Thank you. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all programs at vtdigger.org slash vermontconversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.